0: This is a unique conversation about law enforcement and policing with San Bruno Police Chief Ryan Johansson and retired Lieutenant Chris Ory. I guarantee you that you've never heard a talk like this before, and it will open your heart and mind and contains the seeds of an evolutionary revolution that redefines what it means to be a cop in our world today. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self
1: I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy, founder of Integral Recovery and CEO of iAwake Technologies. And our topic today is one that is very timely and very important. It's policing. And we have with us two really extraordinary police representatives, both of them not only having long and very distinguished careers in policing, but also being contemplative practitioners, integrally informed, doing work in a variety of very innovative and creative ways. And they are Chris Ory, who is a retired police officer, formerly with Hayward City, also a college instructor, an ordained minister, now creating an integral policing initiative. And in her spare time, doing a PhD degree in comparative religion and philosophy. <laughs> and our other guest is Ryan Johansson, who is currently chief of police in San Bruno City in the San Francisco Bay area. And Ryan is, in addition to the, have a long and distinguished career in policing, is also doing further study. He's created, created the ever-present love, which is a way of creating a library of loving messages that can live in perpetuity, and also doing further study, and a mindfulness practitioner, teacher, on his website is what I thought was just a really beautiful description of some of the other, of of an ideal of what it takes to be an effective police person in these days. And he said, the only way to meet the community demands of modern-day policing is to deploy officers who are healthy, happy, and well-adjusted human beings with a deep commitment to a well-articulated purpose. And it struck me, wow, there we have an integral perspective and what's called a metamodern perspective, a perspective which recognizes that that effective functioning societies require mature, healthy individuals. So beautiful. So beautiful. Chris Ryan, welcome. Thank you so much for all you're doing and for being available for a conversation on a very timely topic.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having us. It's an honor to be with you both.
0: And yeah, I just want to add that Chris retired as a lieutenant, so that's to me that's impressive. That's no nothing to sneeze at at all. So yeah. Well, I'm, I guess every podcast host says they're really excited to have their guests, but I'm really excited to have you guys here because I have a, in the seventies, my brother was a border patrol. So I kind of hang out with a lot of law enforcement types and I was kind of, I don't know, kind of a hippie, kind of an, I don't know what, but at, at a certain point that didn't work for me anymore. So I joined the United States military, the army and became a uh, military policeman and then an investigator. So I have a background and often in integral circles, this is not what we talk about. And it's so, so important. I have so many questions for you guys and I'm so deeply moved by careers you've chosen. It's a very, very honorable path. And it's one of self-sacrifice. And obviously there's bad cops, good cops, but in general, in my experience, most cops are good and they're doing their best. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine our country with, without you guys and what you've done. And for those of you who don't know what integral is, because we're all intricately informed, and that is basically a model developed by Ken Wilber and the rest of us who've been working on it for years. But I explain it as a multi-dimensional map of holism, right? Because we used to say, you want to be holistic. Well, that could mean anything, little of this, little of that, and all that. And that's really good, but there's no way to organize and see how it fits together. And through Ken's work, it all began to, to see uh, how, how these things can be improved. And Chris, we had a conversation, I don't know, a couple of months ago, and it was just like, we were just rocking. I like, so excited about this stuff. So I just wanted to say that. Oh, and I wanted to put in there, I found this, I dusted it off. I don't even know dusted it off. But that's that's me a couple of years ago as a, as a young military policeman. And uh, I almost... that almost became my career, but it didn't. Anyway, I just want to say it's a real honor and privilege to be here with you guys. I have a lot of questions. How do we want to get rolling here?
1: Well, I'd like to actually begin by just acknowledging, uh, take a bigger picture on policing, because often we think of it as just law enforcement. But my experience, I've had the good fortune of being of working with and frankly being protected by police working in emergency rooms and with addicts and homeless people as in my role as a psychiatrist. And I'm aware that you, the police, fill many roles, law enforcement being just one of them, but also effectively social worker, mental health consultant, uh, mediator, counselor, emergency medical technicians. And there are probably more roles, but perhaps you could speak to the multifaceted dimensionality of what we simply call policing.
0: And I would add special ops kicking in doors and getting bad guys, you know, that's part of it, too. So you talk about and and I don't know how you organize that. If you expect each cop to have all those abilities or you single them out and get the good, you know, whatever the, the skill sets are. But why don't you guys talk for a while and we'll we won't.
2: Yeah, I'd like to just briefly respond because Ryan gives the most amazing answer I've ever heard on this, especially in these times where the communities are really trying to take some duties away from policing and and think that police should just stick with law enforcement. And Ryan and I are of the same minds that that would really change the career. It would have been a very different career for me. I mean, what brought me to policing was the eclectic nature and all of those roles and all of those hats that we wear you know, Ryan and I have talked about this extensively, and taking away the the social worker hat and the counselor hat and the the big sister, big brother hats. You know, it, w- it would just really change the career, and not for the better. But I, I really want to hear uh, Ryan's thoughts on that.
3: I'm not sure I could articulate it a whole lot better than than you did, Chris. I'll say, Roger, that I really appreciate sort of the setup there because I actually don't like being referred to as law enforcement. I, I think that even the use of the term in this very general sense. It totally underplays what we actually do every day. And for your average police officer in in the modern era, law enforcement is actually probably the smallest portion of what they spend their time doing. And when we're referring to police officers as law enforcement collectively all the time, I can tell you here in our department where I'd like to think that we look at things a bit more integrally and progressively, they don't like that that they feel that it completely fails to really capture what they're engaged in doing all day, every day. And to Chris's point, you're a better law enforcer in that component of the job, if you are recognizing and valuing all the other components of the job, because they are always interwoven. You are not able to separate them and do this job appropriately. You may be enforcing a law, but if you're failing to look at the social elements and all of the factors that are playing into this violation that occurred that you're now called out to deal with you're going to miss infinite opportunities to make an actual difference and and that's why as chris said I, I'm, I'm a bit against the idea of just isolating cops into a world of law enforcement and taking away these other duties there's also a whole other piece that we could get into where i think part of the mental health and well-being of police officers necessitates them continuing to engage in wearing those other hats because You've got to have some success stories and some joys to carry with the heartache and the suffering that comes with wearing this uniform for 30 years. And if you take that away from cops, I think the end result for society will not be what any of us want.
1: Well, you're right, Chris. He gives a beautiful response. Thank you, Ryan. That is that is a very, very comprehensive and very beautiful. And I had not thought of the importance to the police themselves of having these other other roles. And the fact that yes, these other roles would be more fulfilling for them and make for them their health and well-being, etc. But that's good. to That's very valuable. And along with this factor that the police have so many hats, it seems. Again, I want to take a big picture perspective here. It seems that the police function as a kind of societal backstro- backstop. That yes, we have a democracy and there's a lot good here, but our society is failing a significant percentage of its population. And there's extraordinary inequality, poverty, addiction, mental health issues with inadequate treatment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems that the police of necessity are functioning as a backstop for society's failures, dealing with the of necessity with the homeless dealing with an enormous number of mentally ill on the streets, domestic disturbance, drug addiction, etc. Perhaps you could speak to this way in which you're kind of the society's last resort.
3: Yeah, Chris, do you want to start with that one? No, go for it, Chief. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't know that I could have. I've never heard it articulated that way, but it's really quite brilliant. What's interesting about it is I think it's a role that the, the good cops, I'm not sure how to make that distinction, but I think it's somewhat important to make it, embrace that role, which is one of the reasons why I have to disclose my bias probably right away in that I love police officers. And I don't use the term lightly, I love police officers. I think that the majority of police officers are exceptional humans, that they're willing to engage or to endure tremendous suffering on behalf of others, most of whom they don't know and will never actually get to know. And many of whom a lot of society has simply decided to bypass and would prefer to not even see. And so I think the fact that most cops are willing to embrace this role as a backstop, you know, sort of a a last sponge to absorb uh, all that society has to hand out uh, when it's not really clear who else is supposed to handle it. There have been a lot of police executives who've pushed back against that, right, saying that there's all these things we've started to do in the last 20 or 30 years. The scope of work for law enforcement policing has vastly expanded. And they'll complain about it. That, well, you know, this is really difficult. We have strained resources. And how are we going to handle all this? But, you know, similar to my first point, I think it's a role that we embrace and should embrace that some, somebody's got to be there to do that. And again, if we're putting out police officers who are not just law enforcers, but are healthy, happy, well-adjusted individuals, compassionate people who see and embrace that role, it's one that I think we, we actually serve quite well in and that's an area that's been challenging as a police executive is sometimes the narrative is not necessarily backed by fact and things that we might suggest taking away from police if you look at it a little bit more objectively we're actually quite good at and i I think mental health intervention is one of those spaces there's a lot of things said about maybe we shouldn't have cops with badges and guns responding to mental health emergencies but Most of them are just that at the beginning, they're emergencies. So who else is going to respond out and make sure that, you know, relative safety can be restored before we take on the rest of what needs to be taken on. So, yeah, I think that this idea of a backstop is I'd I'd like to be able to play with that a little bit in my mind because it's quite brilliant. And I think that most cops would enjoy and embrace that philosophy.
1: Yeah, well, perhaps we'll come back to it. Chris, did you want to comment further on? It also points to the balance that we take
2: in the community and working with other agencies. I mean, there's so many amazing agencies out there that are doing important work and more long term. You know, police officers respond and have to get things under control, but we don't stay with families and people and people suffering long term. And, you know, to be able to work with those agencies and other first responders you know, is really, really critical. And I, it, police officers do it very well. And police officers are happy when, when somebody with more expertise on homelessness, for example, shows up to take a more long-term approach. And, you know, it this is where integral comes in. It's all about having balance and understanding that we, we cannot just send civilians without the kind of experience interacting with volatile people into a situation, expect them to handle it, yet to have a police officer who's well trained working with a long-term professional is the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah. It's certainly, been my ex- my experience as a as a mental health professional, having police backup has been possibly life saving. So, yeah.
0: Oh, well, when I was an MP, they told us that more MPs died going to familiar altercations than any other single. Issue. So when you go into these things, you know, we have a, a country that's armed to the teeth. Everybody's got guns. I think uh, probably California has the strictest gun control laws of any state besides maybe New York. I'm not sure. But that, that didn't always used to be so much. And so when you go into these and you don't know what's going on, you better have somebody who who knows what they're doing and can handle themselves. If there is violence and you have to protect others from, you know, somebody who's lost it and is armed and getting ready to hurt people. So, And and I wanted to ask you too, something I'm very interested in is, do you feel that your police academies and, and, and your police departments were both kind of south of San Francisco in that area, is the training adequate? And how long does the academy itself last? And how's the state of things in training? And I imagine that, that screening also individuals would be a big part of it. And that's also done at police academies. You see who has it and who doesn't. So how's that going?
2: When I was in the police academy in 1987, I'm much older than Ryan. It was a 12-week police academy. And most of the veterans in our department thought, what the heck are you doing for 12 weeks? You know, and now it's at least six months. And I imagine some veterans are going, What are you doing for six months? You know, I don't think there is enough training to get every cop ready. Yet the training in California is, you know, quite amazing. What I would like to see is to bring some integral into the police academy training, into the hiring process, into the field training process, because any police officer knows that what they learn in the academy. You know it's just it's like taking a sip of water out of a fire hose and it's really the training you get from your FTO on the street that's going to make a difference to your career and the training you get when you become a sergeant and a lieutenant and a chief, etc, you know to have a more integral response so the the training is very good in so many ways. we've added so many components that's why it's gone from three months to six months, for example and yet, I think that there are some things that we could interject, especially from an integral perspective that could make it even better. And, you know, I've been retired for uh, six years, so, you know, Ryan will probably have a more updated version of that. But, you know, it's something we're definitely looking at with integral policing.
3: Yeah, I think you pretty well covered. I mean, the academies are six months here in California. I have done a lot of training around the country and traveled, and that's not true everywhere. There are a lot of places where the duration of a police academy is almost shocking to the conscience to think that that shorter period of time we're going to give someone a badge and a gun and the power to deprive people of their liberty and send them out to a community to chris's point i'm not sure we'll ever arrive at the conclusion that there's enough training period but i have to say that just in my own very humble opinion sometimes training is far too easy a scapegoat we've seen that certainly in the last five to ten years or so where every time there's a problem in policing We say that more training is the answer. And I think the reason that happens is both sides, if if there were two sides to that conversation, will tend to agree with that, right? The, The police executives love to say, hey, this is a training issue because that means it can be solved. And the activist side likes to say it's a training issue because, well, it means maybe it can be solved. And the reality is that I think I love the adage that culture eats policy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You can put folks through a two-year academy if you'd like to and teach them all the integral concepts on the planet. And if you bring them into a toxic culture thereafter, it's going to be undone in a shockingly rapid fashion. And they will immediately acclimate into the culture that they are being asked to acclimate to and quickly erase the things that we teach them to do. I hold a very deep-rooted belief that, in California at least, with the exhaustive measures we take before we hire cops, let alone put them out on the street on their own, the vast majority of police officers who get to that point are phenomenally wonderful people with all the right intentions and they came to the job for the right reasons. So if four or five years down the road, they do something unthinkable and are showing an indifference towards human life, whose fault is that? And the problem is that we have failed to acknowledge that it's probably the department's fault, the the culture of the department and the community. we we share responsibility there because this wonderful person came in one side and within a matter of years, we managed to break them to the point where they will do something that they would have never have done the day they walked in the door. And so while I think training is really, really important, I think that what's even more important is the recognition that maintaining someone in a state of readiness to do this job at the level of relative perfection that's required is a constant undertaking. And The training is never done, and the mentoring and the maintenance of culture is never over. It's exhausting, and it needs to be really kind of at the forefront of what we look at and do. Chris mentioned FTO, the field training officer program. We've all experienced it, right? It it used to be that you came out of the academy, you worked so hard for six months, and you learn all these things, and you come out of the very first FTO you sit in the car with says, hey, that's really great. Now, forget all that nonsense, and let me teach you how to really do the job. I get the spirit of that is that practically you can't really know in the classroom what this is going to be like. And here comes your wake up call kid. But at the end of the day, if that FTO is not standing up the right kind of healthy culture from that first day, that very first moment on that young recruit will begin acclimating to what they think they need to, to survive within that culture and to belong within that culture. And and that's where we see,
0: in my opinion, the, the disasters. And Ryan, how do you you rectify that? I know exactly what you're talking about. So how do you fix that?
3: Well, that's an awesome segue into talking about, in my opinion, integral, especially, you know, the tip of the spear, the the edge of the sword, the the leadership, the integral leadership to me is essential in modern day policing. We talk a lot with the folks over at Integral Life about the difficulty of going to like line level police officers and trying to explain integral theory. I don't know that that's necessary. The reality is they kind of need to know what time it is. They may not need to know how the clock works. But at the top, there's got to be folks who are really seeing the complexities of the environment in which we operate. And they need a framework through which to make sense of those complexities as they're making day-to-day decisions. Here for us, that's been integral, but plain and simple. That that to me is where I think the transition began to occur here is, is having a leadership team that uses, I mean, we could get as practical as you'd like here. We started with simplicity with the four quadrants. And the way that we started to use the four quadrants, because again, even with my command staff, I didn't want to ask them to go read, you know, sex ecology and spirituality, and then now we're all of a sudden gonna know how to run a police department. So instead, we taught about the four quadrants. And I look at those four quadrants, if you can kind of visualize, is like the old Play-Doh factories we used when we were kids. And at a command staff level, we take a decision, whether it's personnel related or community related or critical incident related, and we, we shove it into the four quadrants and we plunge down that Play-Doh factory plunger and we see what comes out the other end. And if one of those quadrants gets clogged and four different things don't come out the other end, we know that we're not ready to make that decision yet. And as a result, we're making more integral decisions. So we are looking at culture when we make a decision like how to discipline an officer over something that occurred out on the street. We're looking at culture, and we're thinking about whether or not to institute a new policy. We're looking at the individual, the collective, the interior, the exterior, not perfectly, believe me, we have a long way to go. But I think that integral view at the top has begun to create a culture where we're not breaking COPS anymore. And I could talk forever about the specifics of what that means, but I'll, I'll shut up and allow Chris to maybe opine.
2: Yeah. And I just want to address the quadrants a little bit. And I know not everybody's familiar with them, you know, as far as the deep transformation uh, community, but it, it became a big deal in my thesis when I was looking at police reform and, you know, the quadrants are basically, and Roger and John, please add anything you have to this. Cause I'm still a rookie when it comes to integral, but the upper quadrants are the individual, the lower quadrants are the collective The left hand of the interior and the right hand are the exterior. So your upper left quadrant is the interior of the individual, you know, our psychology, our, our psyche, et cetera. And the upper right is the exterior of the individual. It's, you know, where neuroscience comes in and, you know, how our brains work and our behavior. And then you flip those down to the collective and you've got the interior of the collective, which is society's values and culture, et cetera. And then you've got the exterior of the collective, which is systems, et cetera. And what I saw in my thesis work was, and I I actually listed them and put them in the different categories of the quadrants, that most police reform efforts are hitting the right-hand quadrants. It's the exterior. It's the exterior of the police officer, their behavior, how they come to something. And it's the exterior of the collective. It's policies, procedures, training, et cetera. So all of our responses to the issues of policing, not all, the vast majority have been right-hand quadrant responses. And what Ryan's talking about with police culture and societal culture are left-hand quadrant responses. And that's where when we talk about having a more integral approach to training, to addressing these issues, we are wanting to bring in all four quadrants you know, and that Play Doh Factory is such a great, you know, analogy and visual for that. But it's it's really huge and it's really significant. And people haven't caught on to it yet, you know, beyond integral thinkers or people that have kind of an innate or intuitive integral approach to
3: things.
1: And perhaps you could say something about what the qualities of a healthy as opposed to a toxic culture are in this world.
3: Yeah, well, certainly I can as, it, as I think it relates to a police department. You know, a healthy police culture is going to look a lot like a healthy organizational culture anywhere else, which, which is kind of fascinating because when you review the literature on police culture, and then you review the literature on organizational culture, it's like we throw out all the principles we learned about organizational culture when we look at cops. And, and we just think that it's so inherently different, and, and it's not, actually. We face different challenges, but if you embrace the idea that a culture is the result of how a group chooses to cope with its shared challenges, which I think most the literature tends to agree on, then we're just another organization. It's just that we have slightly different and in some cases more profound challenges than than some other professions
0: or organizational groups. Ryan, I'm sorry, before this, I've got to get this in. You, you, You finished the last time you're talking with the phrase breaking cops. Could you say a little more about that?
3: Yeah. And I think like, it's actually, there's overlap here in those two questions because, you know, if, if the idea, and I really believe that if the idea is that we wonderful people come in the front end and somehow over a matter of however many years, depending on their experiences, we break them, then the coping mechanisms, how we teach them to cope with the challenges of the job uh, becomes central. It not just to their own individual success, but to the collective, to the collective culture, to how we identify as a group. And so what we've chosen to focus on here is making sure that in advance of trauma, we are providing the right tools and mechanisms to cope with the traumas of this job that are going to be inevitable. And and we're coalescing that with a change of concept. And I think as we started to talk about officer wellness over the last decade, it was similar to how a parent looks at protecting their kids. You want to shield officers from trauma. This will never happen at some point there has to be a segment of society that is willing to stand in front of and with the traumas of the human condition and so we try to teach cops that there's sort of this mathematical equation right the goal here of our wellness program is resilience because you have to be incredibly resilient in order to do this job and to do it well and to survive and the mathematical equation for resilience that we use here that everyone here is familiar with is it's trauma plus integration equals resilience So, it's very easy to see, of course, integration, right? You have to integrate your life experiences, whether that means, you know, at some levels, professional counseling or contemplative practices or a whole litany of things. But the thing that gets ignored is the value of the trauma. Without the trauma, there's no friction. And without the trauma, there's nothing to integrate and there's no resilience. And so, we're learning to embrace the trauma of the job, understand that it's sort of a rite of passage as long as it's properly processed and integrated. And that's been the bigger challenge because the culture in policing is, you know, put up and shut up. Be tough. You, you should not sit here and talk about how that call you went to last night has really messed with you and you're having trouble sleeping or you went to that SIDS case and now you you can't leave your child alone to sleep in their crib. You're walking in there every five minutes. Those things were just sworn off. You don't talk about them. Instead you go have a few beers with the boys, you pretend like it never bothered you and you go right back to work. And what we've done here is embrace the fact that that's just flat out ridiculous. It doesn't work for any other group or culture and it's not going to work for cops. And we have normalized, and I'm happy to talk more about how, the better ways of coping with the traumas of this job. So if you embrace the traumas and then you understand, like we've got a deep-rooted peer support program, we've got completely anonymous counseling services. So none of the stigma that comes with EAP or working through workers' comp when you've had a difficult uh, run of something. We've got truly completely separated Confidential counseling you can go to, I literally just pay the bill. I have no clue who uses it, how often they use it, when they go there to use it. We've got on-duty exercise time. So everyone's got a full hour every single day at work to physically work out the traumas of the job. Everyone's got wellness time during every single shift where they can go into the wellness room and we've provided a full three-and-a-half-day mindfulness intensive for every single officer so they learn some of the base practices for how to sit with the traumas and integrate them and reflect upon them. Yeah. so those are just some of the things but I think that when you talk about a healthy culture versus an unhealthy, it has to do with the same thing these coping mechanisms.
0: So bringing the interiors into policing, if you will, and the four quadrants. Not only do you have to have everything in the exterior squared away, but you have to pay attention to the interiors and that obviously will help your police officers to have more presence that when they show up and people will feel that and they'll know, that an ally is showing up and, and the the apprehensions that I made, I was always very, very respectful of the people that I was putting in handcuffs. It was just, you know, who I was, but bringing in that interior aspect, yeah, it's it's so it's so important. And it's brilliant. You guys are doing this. I, I would love to have been a cop in your department, Ryan. It's, it's really amazing.
2: I say that all the time, John.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, and also I get from you guys and I, I don't know if you reinforce this or this sounds like a cliche or something, but to realize that what you guys are doing is a noble profession you know it's it's like being a priest or or a soldier or a marine it's something you're giving your life to and i have a good friend who's ukrainian she's a psychologist she's over there and she's finding that the ptsd is not as severe as you would suspect because there's a supportive culture people are suffering together it's not just some random thing that happens you realize you're part of something bigger and you're fighting for something that's noble right and good and that seems to be a huge, a huge help in, in maintaining people's sanity and getting them through these traumatic and, and very, very difficult situations.
1: Absolutely. And I was really struck by well, several things that you said, you said Ryan. The one was a statement, there has to be a segment of society that is willing to stand in the face of the horrors of life and deal with them. And it's like, wow, yeah, I hadn't hadn't thought of it in that way, but there does, yes. We need we need a, a a profession that is willing and trained to do that and support it in the way you are. And I you didn't use this word, but one of the things that sounds like you're really doing that's that's novel there is reframing trauma as not just a horror to be pushed under, but friction, as you said. Something that is inevitable part of life or a part of this profession. Anyway, it's yes, trauma is a part of part of life, but it's also much more so for this profession. And something that to, is to be ah, the word that comes up is honored. It's like the willingness to stand in the face of that is honored in some way and to fully supported. That feels so important so important, and not just sucked up.
3: Yeah, there's been an ancillary benefit that I didn't actually identify of this reframing how you look at trauma. And that has to do with better identifying with and having more compassion for victims and survivors. Uh, You know, as cops see themselves that way, it becomes this shared thing between them and the people that they're so ardently trying to protect and bring justice for, that there's a better rapport building there. Like, I've heard cops telling stories, you know, like, I was through, all cops go through plenty of things in their careers, but very early in my career, I had a couple of very marking moments. We'll call them close calls. And it, I always thought it's fascinating when you reach a point in your life where as difficult as something like that was, you would trade it for nothing. I often say that about, so I lost my father when I was young. He died of ALS when I was 14. And it didn't take a lot of years for me to, and, and family members struggled with this when I would describe it this way, that... At this point in my life, if you could give me my dad back, I wouldn't take him because it would change everything else that has occurred in my life that that helped to shape. And cops here are beginning to see the traumas of the job that way, and and that's obviously not something that you can share with or say to a victim or a survivor in the immediate moments following the trauma. But the fact that they take that view. I think victims here in San Bruno find empowering because they're sharing this view with the police officer that shows up to help them, that this is not only survivable, but thrivable. And that if properly integrated and processed, and we work through this the right way, you will emerge infinitely stronger than you went into it. And a lot of times we find that that's the power people need to, to thrive through these incredibly difficult experiences. Right? The cops are experiencing them, but what's more traumatic I think for the average cop is they're watching humans experience those things all day every day so an officer may i've been a cop for almost 20 years i've been shot at twice that trauma is so small compared to the 24 to 35 calls that an average officer here will go to today during their shift and the suffering and trauma they will see and vicariously experience there and so if they're taking this overall view of trauma differently i think they can share it it's not just how they process it's how they teach others to process
1: That's very helpful. I hadn't even thought of that. I I had thought of the trauma that police would have inflicted on them through being shot at, etc. But I hadn't realized, of course, the vicarious trauma, witnessing of the suffering, the injustice, the insanity of so much of the worst of life. Yeah, that's a lot.
3: I think most cops will tell you that trauma is worse. There's a, a really great survey a few years back. I think it may have been done by Cal Chiefs, but I'm not positive that was aimed to identify the the top sources of stress for a police officer. And you take a moment to think about like what a police officer does every day. And you would think it'd be very easy to identify those sources of stress. But the first one, every single time they do a similar survey is always the same. Crimes involving children as victims. So Mm -hmm. it's not about getting out of the car in a traffic stop and being afraid of dying or not going home to your family or being assaulted or you know, all the, the dangers they face, it's, it's watching what humans are sometimes capable of doing to other humans that is the most profound source of stress. And interestingly enough, the second one in the most recent study, which Chris and I have talked about a lot because I hate to hear it, is their own police administrations. And mm-hmm. that, to me, is an argument in and of itself for the need for integral at the leadership level of police departments.
1: Yeah.
0: Could you say a little more about that uh, as far as the police administration?
3: Yeah, I, I think we have a real about face to do. if I am abundantly clear that I serve the police officers in my department, not the other way around. The, the only person necessary in a police department is someone to answer the 911 call and someone to go to the 911 call. The rest of us are here to support them, plain and simple. And if that's the case, And police officers are saying that the thing I'm most afraid of, the thing that causes me the most hurt and stress, and we know that being in that stress state all the time is counterproductive to our mission in the community and what we want to achieve. How can we not take more seriously the way we're treating cops? And and so now we're full circle back to the left quadrant. You could argue there are very few human interactions beyond the most intimate we could think of, like parenthood or marriage that rival the depth of humanity that occurs in police contact. Police are almost always going to be dealing with someone who is having the worst day of their life, is in some state of profound crisis. And they bring to that contact all of their own baggage and whatever they've been going through personally, professionally, otherwise. And then we have to, it's like pouring gasoline in a giant fire and hoping that it doesn't just burn everything down, right? Where someone's got to show up there and be the the fire retardant and cool things down, And if one of the reasons that cop's not in the best place is because they're afraid of their boss, I just don't even know where to begin with that. If you're not willing to then look in the mirror as a police executive and say, what are we doing wrong? And if you're looking at the need to support them, to me, it's all very easy to see, but it's become clear to me that it's not quite so easy for others to see, or maybe it just represents such a profound change that we're not universally ready for it yet. To think about the human first all the time, all the time. Mm. And, you know, in policing, we have this profound forgiveness dichotomy that is so difficult to reconcile. We want cops to be infinitely forgiving. Uh, go out there. It doesn't matter. This person just, just killed their child. Treat them with respect and do the best you can to do your job. And then what we do with cops is every little mistake they make, we, we want to put them in the gallows. And th- you can't, that's not how life works. That double standard doesn't work. And so I think that's getting to the core of what this disconnect is and why cops fear their administrations. They honestly think that they're going to do the best they can, but something's going to go bad as it often does in this line of work and that their administration is going to hang them out to dry publicly and otherwise. And as a result, they're terrified to go out and do their jobs. They feel unsupported and, and that's a problem. And it's not even just with critical incidents. I know Chris, not to call you out here, but you had a very different law enforcement experience than than maybe you could have had because that support maybe wasn't always there in even less obvious fashions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's the double standard that I think it, it really gets to police officers. You know, with police reform, there's these calls for procedural justice on the street and police officers pausing to give people a voice and to take the time to explain the decision they're making, which is absolutely the right thing to do once things are safe and settled. Yet, organizationally, we're not doing that. So if we expect our police officers to exude procedural justice on the street, but we're not giving them organizational justice within the walls of the police department and within their career, then, you know, of course, they're going to have unsatisfying careers. And of course, we're going to have unsatisfying outcomes. And of course, they're not going to treat, you know, members of the public uh, any better than they're being treated within their police department, you know, and and it it's not Ryan is, Rare. I am really sad to say, uh, Ryan is where policing should be going and where police leadership should be going. And I, I don't think that the vast numbers, and you know, I, I, I read all the police literature and police executive research forums always putting out information, and I mean, there's, there's so much information to support that that we need a more servant-based leadership. And you know, Ryan talked about I'm here to serve the officers, not the other way around. It's huge. And how do we get there? You know, and that's where again integral theory comes in with developmental stuff. You know, we we have to find ways to develop leaders and develop police officers, not just within the training of how to be a cop, but within the the development of being a human. You know, and what those developmental levels look like. And one of the things that excites me the most with integral theory is perspective taking. You know, and if we can get police officers to understand perspective taking and even be interested in it, and even you know, pursue it and be perspective seekers. You know, we could change law enforcement, and you know, and you don't get that without leaders who are willing to do that.
0: Yeah, when I when I was in the six six months program going to to become an MP on this to your unit, and the last half of that was done with the Marine Corps, which it just. Pile in right out of boot camp and start training with us. And one of the things I, I really admired about the Marines and still do, they have this principle that the last person to get fed is the officers. You know, all your men, everybody squared away. And then, then you can have something to eat, which I just think it's moving, but it's also a metaphor of exactly what you were saying, both of you as, as leadership, being a servant. Jesus said, you know, the greatest among you be the servant of all. God, that, I'm sure you, you know, Chris, from your experience and Ryan, how that kind of leadership at the top makes all the difference. And the zeitgeist that we were going through now in the last few years where the, the police are being scapegoated, right, for obviously some really super bad criminal things happen. you know, and we saw it, but that's the exception, you know. I, I think it's a very strange time, you know, in, in conservative politics now, they attack the FBI. They had, the DOJ, the law enforcement becomes the bad guys. And it's like this through the looking glass period, politically, things have changed so so rapidly. Yeah. How do you how do you particularly surf that wave? And are the officers on the street aware of things changing right now as far as as far as how they're viewed in general? Thank you for being with us for the first part of this conversation. Stay tuned to part two as we continue to ride the wave of the Dialogos with Police Chief Ryan Johansson and Lieutenant Chris Ore. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iWake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.